The fact that he's unchangeable is something we're going to look at this morning. You take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. morning we are going to look at a passage of scripture that uh, is then going to take us across our Bible. If you've not been here on Sunday nights, you've not uh, been able to be a part of our series that has been uh, God's glory revealed in everyday life. And it comes from this passage of scripture in Exodus chapter 34 that we have been working on trying to memorize and uh, get this uh, in our mind as far as uh, what the scripture says about God, who he is, what his character is like, and what we can grasp onto uh, the, uh, the statements about God about himself. Now, I'm going to put this on the screen because I'm going to leave this here the whole time I preach. But what I want us to do this morning is what we were doing in the evening services was just simply going through and quoting this or reading this statement that God made about himself. This is what you want people to give you what God is like. Sometimes you can go out and get surveys of people and they say, who's God and what's he like? And they'll come up with all sorts of things. Well, here's what God's statement about himself, what he is like, his direct declaration of who he is. And you find this in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, right in the middle. It starts uh, this statement and we'll just go through and uh, quote this statement here and uh, get it at least into our mind and in our mouths uh, before we kind of look at uh, what and why uh, this is here. But let's go ahead and start. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. That was a statement that was pivotal in the history of the nation of Israel. So you find this, it's in the middle of uh, what we have as far as the nation of Israel coming out of the land of Egypt. And for this nation, they were not deserving of God's grace. In fact, you look at Genesis in the beginning of Exodus, you find that God chose this nation not because of who they were, of their character. In fact, you look at the life of Abraham and what we know about him in commentary in Joshua, that when God called Abraham, that he was going to have a great people after him, that he was worshiping other gods beyond the flood. What it means is beyond the Euphrates River when he was called in Ur of the Chaldees. He was an idol worshiper when God called him. And you find that God made promises to Abraham and to his sons and to his grandson and to his great-grandsons that they would be his people that he would be their God and he would take care of them and watch over them. And you look at the story in Genesis and you find out that these individuals had their problems. Abraham, I mean, of all things, lied about his wife twice uh, to different people. Uh, and you go on, you have Isaac who is favoring certain children and you have Jacob. Well, he was known as the deceiver, the supplanter. That was his name. 
He's always cheating people and the like. And then you look at the sons of Jacob uh, and all of them notable for their problems except for Joseph. And this is the individuals God said, I will take care of you. You will be my people. But it's when Jacob and the sons, uh, you read the story there, they get to Egypt and they're there for a couple hundred years in Egypt that they end up being in slavery. And that their cry goes up. And at the beginning of Exodus, you read through the account that God hears the cry and begins to respond. And so he calls Moses to be the leader of this people, to lead them out of the land of Egypt. But God says this, I am going to redeem this people. I'm going to do this with a strong hand and a mighty arm. I'm going to do this and I am going to have my glory known. It's going to be known by the Egyptians. And you read through the story in Exodus where God delivers two million people without a single battle being fought, that he delivers his people through what we know as the ten plagues, but ten incredible signs that God uses. And then ultimately the dividing of the Red Sea where God shows these people that he's going to take care of them, even if it requires incredible means to do this he is going to rescue his people and so what happens is that god brings these people to a place called sinai there's a mount there and he brings his people there and when this happens you read in this in exodus chapter 19 that god calls a solemn ceremony he tells the people to get ready, to clean up, to, to do these type of things because he's going to come down and meet with his people. And when he comes down and declares who he is, I want you to just turn back to this, and we will be going from passage to passage here uh, because we're going to look at some of the things we've already gone through in the previous eight sermons we've gone through. But in Exodus chapter 20, you have God making what we know as some call it the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. Where God makes a declaration, and it's not just that He's giving out rules. I mean, most people go, oh, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Rules. But what God is doing is that He is sharing with people how they ought to reflect His image and who He is. That they don't go around messing up what He's like. That people will see that he's this kind of God. And so he lays out these commands and he starts off in verse number three, thou shalt have no other gods before thee. Okay, I'm the only God. But then verse two, he says this, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And you say, why does God say this? Because when you make something, an idol, whether it's metal or wood or, you know, today we make all sorts of things idols. We place them in the place of God. But when you do that, what you're doing is getting people confused as to what God is like. They're not seeing his image clearly. They're confused by these things. And so God gives this command, and then he adds this statement in verse number 5, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. And then he makes this statement about himself. This is why you don't make images. Verse 5, For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments 
In the midst of the statement, don't mess up what I'm like, you need to, to make sure that by your actions and by your creativity, you're not confusing people. Don't make a, an image of me. He goes, why? Because he's a jealous God. Now, that word jealous has overtones in our culture of envy and those type of things. But when God uses this, it's just this, that he's saying, I'm a zealous God. I'm eager about my relationship with you. Don't mess up that relationship in considering me because I am a jealous God. I'm not going to give my glory to something else. I am a certain way, and he then states what he's like. That he does visit iniquity. He does visit judgment. And you say to the third and the fourth generation, you say, that's kind of harsh. Well, sin does have consequences for future generations. And we can see that all around us, but that's not really the emphasis of what God's saying here. It's saying this, that if you have one generation that commits a sin and the next generation commits the same sin, they're going to be judged the same way. They're both going to be judged, and, and they're going to be judged if the third generation decides to go ahead and do what they want to do. But on the other side of this, and we, we you know, get caught up in that first statement and go, well, what does that mean that he's judging third and fourth generations? But look at verse 6. He is one who shows mercy. This is a word that is throughout the Old Testament. It's the, the Hebrew word hesed, and it's a word that is very difficult for us to define in our English language because there's no equivalent. It's got, in different ways that you see it translated, it's defined as loving kindness or mercy or it is uh, loving loyalty. Uh, these type of terms where the idea is that God is moved and faithful to his people he shows them good uh and, and he shows them faithfulness when they don't deserve it and when he says this i'm one who shows mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments what he's exemplifying and overstating he judges to the third and fourth generation but he is eager to show mercy to thousands and we might say this, thousands of generations, God wants to display his mercy, his grace, his compassion, and his faithfulness. So you, you have this statement made by God. Don't make idols and understand this. My character is this. I judge sin, but I want to show mercy. And you turn your Bibles and you go to Exodus chapter 32 and you go, what happens? Here the nation of Israel's got the opportunity to be at this mountain, see God on full display. Say, how is that? Well, God came down on that mountain and there's this lightning and thundering that is going on. Uh, this cloud that had been there with them across the Red Sea and to the Mount Sinai. Now the Shekinah glory representing that God is there is on full display Everybody, the two million people can see this vast mountain that looks like it's exploded the smoke that rises up and the sounds that come forth from this, they're seeing a display of God's power. Moses has gone up into this mountain to receive the Ten Commandments because these people said, we'll have God to be our God in Exodus 24. And God said, well, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And they went through the ceremony covenant where blood was shed, that there's binding them together in this promised agreement. 
But as the nation in Exodus chapter 32 is waiting for Moses to come back down, they begin to think this, that Moses may have gone up there to his own destruction. They haven't seen him in a little while. And so their solution is this. Well, we don't have Moses to lead us anymore. Let's create something that will lead us. And so what they come up with is this plan uh, brought up by both uh, Aaron and the people that they come up with this golden calf that is going to lead them through this wilderness and lead them wherever they need to go. They craft this, and it is not but just a few minutes later that after this whole thing's crafted and they get together for their festival, that God calls Moses and says, you need to go down to the camp. The nation has sinned, and you read this whole story where God is about to judge the nation of Israel, and he says, listen, I'm going to wipe out the nation and make you, Moses, a new people out of you. And he just reminds the Lord, it's a great uh, passage where he intercedes to the nation, he just simply says, listen, if you wipe them out, what will the Egyptians say? What will your testimony be amongst them that you brought these people out and you destroyed them in the middle of the wilderness? And what about your promise to Abraham? And it says there that God relents from the immediate judgment that he was going to to do to the people. But Moses comes down and there's this whole thing where Moses breaks the Ten Commandments there. And there's a calling for of a rising up against those that are openly still, uh, even with Moses coming back and all that's going on that are continuing to worship this golden calf. There is a a cleansing there from the Levites that go through the camp and kill these individuals who are still worshiping this golden calf. But then the statement is made in 33 and 34 that God says, listen, I'm done with this people. I'm not going to go with them anymore. In fact, I'm going to have this place where you can meet with me, Moses, but you set it up outside the camp. You put this tent up. And I'll meet with you, but I'm not going to meet with this people. And so Moses goes out to the tent, and all the people watch as he goes out there, and the glory of God is there visible, and the Shekinah glory, this this cloud that's there. And he goes and meets with God back and forth, and he finally is pleading with God, you must, I mean, this people can't survive unless you go with them. And God declares, I will go with them. Well, all of this leads to the point where Moses is just like, I've had these people, two million people, I've been wrestling with God. And there is some discouragement. There is some frustration. And he just comes to the point where he is not knowing what to do, really. And you see in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 12, it said this, that Moses said unto the Lord, See thou sayest me, bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight. Consider that this nation is thy people." Verse 14, God says, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. For wherein shall it be known there that this I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people of the earth that are upon the face, or excuse me, all the people that are upon the face of the earth. 
And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. Verse 18, Moses said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. I want some understanding or confidence that what you are and who you are, that you'll do it, show me something. And what we probably have here is that Moses is considering he wants a visible display, something he can see that he knows God is with him. You know, sign in the sky, whatever it may be. He is trying to see this, and he says, Lord, just show me a little bit of your glory. I want to know that you really are who you are, that you really will do what you are going to do. You say, well, that would be neat to be able to see God's glory. If I had an event like that, I would live on it for the rest of my life. I got to see God one time and, and this incredible thing. Well, verse 19, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me that thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover thee with my hand while I pass by, and I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face thou shalt not see. What he simply says is this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pass by, I'm going to make a declaration about who I am, I'm going to declare my name which his name is all of his character. But I'm going to declare my name, but I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, and what I'm going to allow you to do is that you're going to see the back parts of me. And you say, what do you mean by that? The after effects of him going by. He's not going to see God, but he's going to hear God. So the event comes as this, that Moses, in verse 34, takes the two tablets that he's carved out. He comes up into the presence of God. He hews these things. He goes up on Mount Sinai early in the morning. And verse number 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood by or stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And then it's the statement, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed. Now, this is God displaying his glory. Okay, I'm showing you my glory. Well, what does he do? He makes a declaration about who he is. The Lord, the Lord God. You say that name, the Lord, what's, what's the deal with that? That's the name that God gave. It's in all caps. It's the name Jehovah translated in other passages. But it's the idea of God always existing. It's the idea of I am. But it was the name that God gave to his people. And he said, this is the name that you'll call me by because you're my people. This is our connection name. This is the name that we connect by. I am the Lord. And so he just simply says this, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. The idea of those terms is that God has moved with compassion like a mother for the children and that he is gracious, that he gives good gifts. He gives good things to people. That he is one who is long-suffering. We said that is a rather picturesque word in the sense that it means in the Hebrew, long of nostril. It's describing that we talk about people that are sometimes short-tempered. They're quick to explode when anything happens with God. No, he holds his breath for a long time before he responds. That's what God's like. He, this is his character, that he doesn't immediately react uh, to when things are done wrong. And that God is abundant in goodness. That's that word has said again. That God is a loyal God. He's a loving God. He's attached to his people. He's faithful. 
He's a God that's abundant in goodness and truth, that he keeps mercy. He's got this has said for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Every kind of sin you want to categorize is in that term. He forgives it. Now, some may see, after you have all these characteristics of God, that God's a pushover. You know, he'll, he'll let me get away with anything. And you have this balance in God's character where he just simply says this, listen, I will visit iniquity upon individuals who continue to go their way. I will bring judgment upon this, and I'll bring judgment upon future generations of individuals that do the same thing. So it's not that God is just one who is kind, gentle, gracious, merciful, but God would love to magnify that. In fact, as you go through the scripture, when you look at God's character, you have to provoke God's wrath. Okay? You have to do something to put yourself under the judgment of God to make him angered to give you judgment. You have to provoke him. Like, you know, kids in the car sometimes as we talk about road trips here in the summer and you have your own dividing lines of where everybody's at and you don't cross that line and, you know, don't, you know, and you have the little brother who's always provoking, you know, is putting his hand across the line and poking and doing this type of thing. And, and finally you respond. Well, God only responds in anger and wrath because he's been provoked, but his character all the time is that he's wanting to show grace and compassion faithfulness and goodness this is always his character in fact he would delight in doing this all the time but there are occasions where he has to respond so when we think of god sometimes they think of the god in the old testament as an angry god when you see god describing himself he goes no i would love to display my long-suffering nature my gracious spirit my compassion that i move towards you and so this statement that was made to Moses, we looked at uh, for the last couple of weeks that this is a statement that the nation of Israel kind of made their, we might put it this way, their creed. Or a statement that they perhaps taught their children and their children's children. This is something that would have been a statement that everyone was familiar with because it's a statement that comes out for the next well, you look at your, your Bible, for the next thousand years, you have this statement quoted in different passages of Scripture, and it's used in different contexts for different situations, how you use this glory of God in different situations. One of the first individuals to use this is we, we find, well, we, we have to step back a second. Moses actually has to use this statement. One other time, you find in Numbers chapter 13 and 14 that the nation of Israel standing on the borders of the promised land. And you find that they're there waiting to enter into the promised land and they're sending in 12 spies and those 12 spies come back out. And we know that this is the children's song, but it's sad. Ten come back and say, it's a great land, but we can't conquer it. Two go, we can because the Lord's with us. And they 10 convince the nation in fact they're going to come in and stone moses they're going to kill him because they are done with his leadership and moses has to come and pray before god because god once again is going to judge the whole nation and he prays this statement you find it in numbers chapter 14 uh, verses 15 to 24 right in the middle of this he prays this statement to god he says, you're a God like this. You're one who is merciful and you're gracious and you forgive iniquity and sin. And we've definitely crossed a line here and we need forgiveness. And he uses this in a prayer for the nation of Israel. 
God, you're like this. I'm praying your character back to you. You, please respond in the way that you've described yourself, who you are, how you've displayed your glory. And so Moses used this later on. In times future that he remembered this statement that God said, this is what I'm like. He prays it back to God. You get to David, who's about 400 years after uh, the, the writer Moses, and what you find is that in three different psalms, he uses this. And I just want us to go through and look at some of these psalms. So I want us to turn to the first one that David has, and that, that is in Psalms 86. Psalm 86 is a psalm that has many familiar sections to it. Uh, if you've not memorized it, you've probably memorized a verse or two out of it. But you find this is a psalm that is teaching individuals how to pray. I mean, he enters in in verse number one, Bow down thy ear, O Lord, hear me. I am poor and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am holy. O thou my God, save thy servant that trusteth thee. If you go through it, there's just request after request after request after request after request. He's praying. But in the middle of this, as he goes through and says, okay, you're God and I'm coming to you in prayer and I need things answered because of the situation that I'm in. Uh, verse 7, in the day of my trouble, I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. And you go, well, how does he know that? Go back to verse number 5. Here's what David says, I'm praying, I have needs, and then verse 5, for thou, Lord, art good, ready to forgive, Plenteous in mercy to all them that call upon thee. He uses this quote from Moses in his prayers. He says, you're like this, and I know you'll respond because this is what your character's like. You go down even further, you go down to verse number 13. For great is thy mercy toward me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. The idea is there that you've delivered me from the grave. And you get to verse 15. But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious and long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. What you can do when God has declared his glory and said, this is what I'm like, these are things that you can grab onto and say, God, you're like this. You've said this about yourself, and I'm coming to you on the basis of who you are and what you've declared. A statement like this can help you in your prayer life. You can pray the way that you ought to because you know this God. He said, I'm like this, now come to me and make your request known. You see later on in Psalm 103, we turn over to that psalm, that David uses this statement about what God is like to be able to praise God. Sometimes people have difficulty, and you find this as a pastor sometimes as you go and talk to people, and you go, hey, do you have anything, to th you know, any thanksgiving, any praise that you want to give to God, and it's like, you know, crickets. You know, you can hear everything, but no one's saying anything at times, and you're going, Really? Because when you think about it, if there's anything, you just think about what God's like. And in Psalm 103, you have this psalm that starts this way, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits, good things. Who forgiveth all iniquities, who healeth all our diseases. Sounds like uh, he's kind of hinting at the fact of this statement that Moses had. 
But then you go through and you continue to go through this and you look at verse number 8 as he's praising the Lord and he's saying, what a great God you are. All of a sudden, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide. means he's not always going to keep away from judging sin. But uh, neither will he keep his anger forever. And you go through this and he's praising God and he says, here, you need to bless the Lord. Look at verse number 17. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting and everlasting to them that fear Him, His righteousness and to children's children. I mean, he's simply saying, I've got reason to praise God, and here's what I know about God. God, you're worthy of praise because you have met needs in the worst of times and the, the farthest of uh, times, and even in sin. Okay? Think about this, that God forgives sin and how David praises God for this. Look at verse number 12 or verse 11. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards us that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our, our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. You can just say, Lord, thank you for taking my sins away. As far as the east is from the west, you've forgiven my sins. You're not going to bring it up again. And so you have this kind of statement that if you have it in your head and you go, what can I praise God for? Just forgiveness of sins that you can praise Him for. You go to Psalm 145. It's the closing, the closing psalms that David is ultimately ending with the greatest of praise that he possibly can. But in Psalm 145... It starts off with this statement, I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever. Every day I will bless thee. I will praise thy name forever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. And then you see this statement, one generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and thy wondrous works, and men shall speak of the might of thy terrible or awesome acts, and I will declare thy greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness and shall sing in thy righteousness. Verse 8, the Lord is gracious. He is full of compassion. He's slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies over all of his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. What you have here is that this is not just merely a statement that can be grabbed onto by certain select groups of people. What this statement works for is that God is like this to everyone. Do you see that statement there where it's talking there? God is good to, verse 9, all and his tender mercies over all of his works, that this is not just merely that God shows these things to a select group of people. No, God displays this all the time. You might think of it as it's described in the Sermon on the Mount, that God allows it to rain on both the evil and the good. He has the sunshine on both groups. Those are good things. He does this continuously to all people and all nations. He displays his character being compassionate and kind and gracious and good. And he's worthy of praise for this. In the psalm, and he just simply says, My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever. So if you're wondering what you can praise God for, it's this type of thing that you ought to have running through your head and going, what could I possibly praise God for? Oh, his compassion, his graciousness, his forgiving of my iniquity. All of these things will give you something to praise God for. So the question then comes, is this a statement that really does work for all people? And I want you to turn over to Jonah chapter 4. 
There's two books in our Bible that are written to the nation of Assyria, actually the city of Nineveh. One of them is Jonah, and one of them is Nahum. Jonah, we obviously have him fleeing from the message that God said. He goes as far away as he can, and it doesn't work out uh, for him because God prepares a fish and gets him back the direction he needs to be going. And Nineveh go, or excuse me, and Jonah goes through that town of Nineveh, and you read what happens in chapter three here. He simply just goes through, and he's not really happy to preach this message. You can tell that it's not a wholehearted thing that he's doing here, but he's doing it. But he goes through the city, and he just simply preaches in Jonah chapter three and verse four. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And he just kind of walks across the city and says this. But what he didn't know is that. There had been all sorts of different calamities that had happened as famine and war and eclipses and other things had happened that Nineveh at this time was concerned. And you have all the people that hear this message, they start tearing their, their clothes and their garments and they put on the, the sackcloth and the ashes and they're showing that they are upset. The king hears about this and he's saying, well, this is what we need to do. He says this is what the nation should do as far as worshiping God. Verse 8, let no man or let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is within their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent or repent, which is the word nahum, we talked about this, that maybe he will nahum. It's going to play a role in what God does next in the book of nahum. Will God relent and turn away his fierce anger that we perish not? It says this, verse 10, and God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he had thought that he would do to them. He nahumed, he relented. And so you go, well, this is a good story. God saves a bunch of people. And you get to chapter 4 and you have Jonah who is upset. He is, uh, comes out and it says that, verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry. I mean, he's angry, angry with anger is how the Hebrew puts it. He's not happy. And here's what he says. He prays unto the Lord, and he says this, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew thou art a gracious God, and merciful, and slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from thee, for it is better for me to die than to live. He's mad. He goes, because I knew you would do this. He knew what God's character was like, and he was thinking, well, maybe God won't do it for Nineveh. And God, he goes, well, maybe, but I, I think he'll probably do this for Nineveh. He'll save them if they respond. And sure enough, God holds to his character, even with Nineveh, which was one of the worst countries in the world. I mean, you, you line them up with terrorists and others, they would have been right in the group. Assyrians were not nice people. And Jonah's mad. And did God relent? Yeah. Did God forgive iniquity? Yes. Was God long-suffering? Yes, absolutely. And he showed it not just to Jews, he showed it to Assyrians. Now you go, well, how does that connect with the book of Nahum? Well, you get to the book of Nahum, and I want you to simply turn there. Nahum is written a hundred years later. And Assyria had, had a revival for a time under Jonah and seemed to be going well, but a hundred years later, they're doing the same thing, killing off whole cities and, and torturing the people that they do capture. And they do all of this, and they're not very kind people. And you get to verse 1, you have Nahum, 
whose name meant relent. And he makes this statement, verse 2, God is jealous, the Lord revengeth, the Lord revengeth and is furious, the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, he reserveth wrath for, the, for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked, or as we might put it in our passage in Exodus 34, will not clear the wicked. I mean, what suddenly happens is here you have the first part of Exodus 34, verse 6, where God is compassionate and he's moved uh, with this and he's long-suffering and he'll do this for everyone. But on the other side, you have people that sin, God's eventually going to judge them. They're not going to get away with it. It's this two-sidedness of the character of God, that he is good and he's merciful, but yet he is a judge. He must. And you see it in the story of Nineveh. God's long-suffering. He gives him another hundred years before he judges. God's a gracious and compassionate God. There's two other passages of Scripture that we're not going to look at. But if you read Nehemiah chapter 9, there's a prayer there made by the people that they're asking for forgiveness of sin. The city of Jerusalem had done some things, and as the priests got together after building the walls, they read the Scripture and realized they'd been doing some things wrong. And they pray the history of the nation of Israel. In the middle of it, they pray this statement that we find in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, that God is a compassionate God. You go to Joel chapter 2, where God is bringing in a locust army through the nation of Israel, and there is this judgment where you have basically the whole of all the crops that is destroyed uh, and there's nothing left and God says this is a warning of judgment because there's a greater judgment when an army comes through your nation a real army are you going to repent and the statement is made therefore also now saith the Lord turn ye unto me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and with mourning rend your heart and not your garments turn unto the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness repenteth him of evil who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him what is stated here you've got this character of God and you go and you turn from your sins remember all these things God's not up there going I want to judge this person. No, God wants to show compassion. He wants to show his goodness. He wants to show mercy. He wants to display that. But what he's waiting for is the response that we're responding to him. He'll show that. He'll display it. And so when we fail God time and time again, God will accept us over and over and over again when we fail and we come back and we ask in repentance and we even quoted the passage in the new testament that we talk about this if we confess our sins he is faithful and just he will do this he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and he'll even go beyond that he'll he'll give you an abundance of his mercy and grace because it says this and he will cleanse you from all your unrighteousness He'll not just even take care of the sins that you come and remember and are confessing before him. What he does is he goes beyond and he cleanses you from all of those sins. Now, we say all of that is introduction, and you're probably going, oh no. That's all introduction. Because that's not the only passage or only passages that have this statement of Moses quoted 
It was in John chapter 1. I want you to turn here. It was there this morning. See, for generation upon generation, people had quoted this passage of Scripture and had quoted this over and over and over again, that God was this way. But still, God was distant. Okay? They could make these statements that He was merciful and long-suffering. But that gets kind of hard to understand sometimes. What does that mean? And what you have in John chapter 1 is that John is making a play on the writings of Moses. And he's going to talk about the fact that you have someone who ultimately comes and shows us this statement. I mean, you start off in John 1.1, it's in the beginning, and you're thinking this, God created the heavens and the earth. No, it's not that. Though it's got the grand idea of creation with it, but in this case, it's in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Here you have the story of creation, and all these things going on, and light shining out of darkness, and things having life, and there's this one that's with God by the name of the Word who is with God, there's a close relationship with Him, and He is God. Now, you, just reading this, you have no explanation as to who this is. You're just starting off and going, well, who's this word? Well, thinking about that word, a word is a communication. We use words to, well, help people understand who we are. Sometimes our words get muddled and we're not that clear, but there are And reasons why we communicate with words is because people then can have pictures and understand what we're talking about. And what God says is this, there was one with him that he describes as the word who was God, who was part of creation, that he gives life and he gives light and he's able to do these things like the creation story. Okay, John hints at this. And he even comes into this world and his world doesn't receive him. And he comes into his own people and they don't receive him, verses 10 and 11 tell us. He comes to the Jewish nation. They don't accept him. But then you have this statement. Here you've got this God who's in eternity past, who's always there. But look at verse number 14. You ought to read verse 1 and then read verse 14. And all of a sudden it says this, that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That this one that was God in eternity past took on human flesh. Not that he took the likeness of this. No, he took on human flesh. He was God, but took on humanity, and he dwelt among us. And you ought to underline that word dwelt and put next to it tabernacled or tented. It's the word used to describe the tabernacle in the Old Testament And what it did, it was a place where people could come and meet with God. They could worship God there. They could offer sacrifices for sin. They could see God displayed there. They would center, in fact, their whole camp was centered around this tent where God was at. And they could see this cloud that was above this and go, God is there. And they would come and do this. And the tent could actually go with them wherever they went. It could go there. And what you have here is that simply this, is that this word tented 
this individual went amongst mankind and wandered around with them like the tent in the wilderness that God was the center here, that God suddenly is not in a tent, but he is actually a person. And this person, as you look at him, uh, look at verse number, or at the end of verse number 14. It says this, We beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of We might say goodness and truth from this passage, but he's full of grace and truth. What John is stating here, if you don't understand what it means that the Lord, the Lord God, is these things, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, that he is abundant in goodness and truth, that he is keeping mercy for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. If you don't understand that, you have now a person who is God in human flesh that you can see it in. You're no longer having to go, well, I wonder what that would be like. No, you can now see it as Jesus lives his life out amongst humanity. He goes amongst the people there and he is sharing these things that he is like. He lives his life this way. And you find this as you read in verse number 16, and of his fullness, we have all received grace for grace. John goes, we were able to see this. We were able to see Jesus. And as he went around, we were able to see the fullness of his glory. Now, it wasn't that Jesus was walking around and he's got this halo over his head. Like some would suggest in their paintings of the day. No, in fact, he didn't have that. But what was he showing that displayed that he was God? He's merciful. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's long-suffering. He puts up with people who are obnoxious to him. I mean, he does this, and he's displaying his glory. He's showing his full display of his glory, and it's not by great signs, though he did do that. It's through who he was and what he did. And you read the stories of compassion for lepers, people who have lost their children. I mean, you just go through it. You find a God who's this way, and it's displayed in Jesus Christ. And what you see is that we have here a grace. It says, for grace, read that last statement there in verse number 16, and grace for grace, what it has there is the idea is that you have grace stacking upon grace, stacking upon grace. What you have is an overabundance of grace being displayed. It's just being stacked upon and upon and upon. You go, what's God like? You're seeing it in Jesus displayed. You see this displayed. And then it says this, for the law was given to Moses. But grace and truth come by Jesus Christ. Moses' law kind of gave a picture of what Jesus is like, and the writings of Moses give us this writing. But what are you able to see? You're able with Jesus to see a full display of grace and truth, what it's like for someone to be like this. And then this statement, in verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. Remember, Moses says, can I see your glory? And God says, no, I'm not going to let you see my glory. But... Through Jesus Christ, this word, we've seen a full display of God's glory. We've seen him and what he is like. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten, the, the unique and only son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. That word declared, underline it, is a word that means exegete. It means to lead out 
statements. It's what a preacher does. He tries to take stuff out of the text and preach it to you. So what Jesus does is this. He declares what God is like. He leads us to understand what he's like. You go, why? Because he lives his life and displays all of these characteristics that are his glory. And so for us, you go, well, if I don't understand this statement of Moses, what you need to do is just sit down and look at the life of Christ. He is the one who is compassionate and moved to save us. And there are hints every once in a while throughout his ministry. You do see that he judges certain things. He makes statements about the Pharisees and says, this is true about you. But for the most part of his ministry, you're seeing a display of his grace. When he came the first time, he was magnifying his being a savior. You think about the other writing of John that he wrote. He displays the other part of what God's character like. And it's this, that he will judge sin. You read the book of Revelation. In Jesus, you have both Savior, full of grace and compassion, but yet visiting iniquity, transgression, and sin, judging those things, taking care of that. And so for us as believers, if we want to see a display of God's glory, read the life of Christ. See the compassion, see what he's like, and understand that's the God of the universe who says you can grab onto this and these statements and bring praise to me. You can repent, you can pray, you can do all of these things on the basis of what I'm like. And when you see a display of what I'm like, you can guarantee it will never change. We had the song before the service here, Mighty, Almighty, Unchangeable God. God doesn't change. His character 2,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago, when he made the statement to Moses, he's always the same. And so when you need confidence of what God's like, this kind of statement ought to be something that you have in your head, that God's like this. And if you want to see it played out, go read the life of Christ. Your God is a God like this. He wants to save. He wants to show mercy to you. He wants to show grace all the time to you. But if you want to go your own way, he will judge. And he will do it for eternity. It will be an eternal judgment, just as he shows the eternal grace. And so you find in Jesus the balance of this statement, this is God's glory for your everyday life. You can cling to this and live according to what you see here and see how it's played out in the life of Christ. He's a great God, worthy of our praise. He wants to be your God and display these things to you every day, and he will. Lord, we thank you. You are a great God. You are an incredible God that you sent your son into this world as beyond our imagination that you would have compassion for individuals that would turn away from you, but you sent your son who is a display of your compassion and your mercy and your grace. Lord, today we pray that we would be individuals that would cling to what we know about you and live our life by it. For those that you know know you as Savior, may we live in relation to you on the basis of being your people. Lord, there may be one or two here today that don't know Jesus as Savior. Well, they're facing the judgment side of your character, but you would love to extend your mercy and grace through your Son, Jesus Christ, who died displaying compassion for sinners. Lord, may we uh, be people who are gracious in our testimony to others, but uh, displaying what Jesus has done for us and does for us all the time. 
We love you. We praise you in your son's name. Amen.